today we're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting verse 8 and going to chapter 6, verse 9. If you see the poor oppressed in a district, and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a high one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain, since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness, and with great frustration, affliction, and anger. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun, during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on, their day, on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor, so that they lack nothing their hearts desire. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them, and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning. It departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place. Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. What advantage have the wise over fools? What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Thank you so much, Lewis. Um, let's pray as we look at that together. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that uh, your word 
is a shepherding, caring word that gives us insight into things we find difficult. And we need the help of your Holy Spirit to take your view of the world. So we pray today you would give us that help by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I think I should start today, excuse me if I get the pronunciation wrong, by saying gong hei fat choi. Is that right? So if you're celebrating Lunar New Year, uh, Happy New Year. Um, and uh, my name is Morris. I'm one of the leaders here. We're going to look at Ecclesiastes for a few minutes together. So do keep it open if you have been reading it. I'm going to be talking about that quite a bit. And I want to start by talking about algebra. Um, I know, algebra. Well, actually, I want to start just by reading this verse again. This verse that's in the passage is the key to the whole thing. It's the last one we had read. Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. Keep that in mind as we talk about algebra. At the moment in our house, we are discussing algebra because someone in our house is learning algebra. If you don't know what that is, it's like a really hard type of maths. And uh, they have clocked, the person learning algebra, that neither me nor my wife, who are encouraging the algebra homework, Neither of us ever use algebra. Um, Now, what has been interesting when we are asked about that is the reasons we are taught to give to our child about why they should keep going with algebra. So here's one we're taught to give. I know you hate algebra, but you need to do it now so eventually you can give it up and do something you enjoy. So it's like, do it now until you get that exam where you need it for, and then you can forget all about it. So the assumed motivation is seek pleasure, and it's a means to an end, a means to get there. Or here's another one we're taught to give. The school are a big fan of this one. Uh, you, may need, you may need algebra later in life if you want to be a very successful woman in STEM industries, and that is what the school would very much like for you. It would look good for them. Uh, so knuckle down. And of course, the aim there is aim for success and aim for money, aim for a career. That's why you learn algebra. Now, I have said both those things. And for those reasons, I've found studying Ecclesiastes quite challenging as a parent. Because this ancient book of wisdom has been saying, listen, if you chase your own pleasure or you chase your own dreams... You never reach them. It uses this phrase, we have translated meaningless, which isn't a very good translation. It's a vapor, something you're always trying to get hold of, but you never catch. Chasing after the wind, he says. You can never grasp it, you're never satisfied, and honestly, it doesn't make any difference to the world after you're gone. Now, can I just put in brackets here? Sometimes well-meaning people, when I give illustrations like this, find my children and ask them about their algebra homework. Please don't do that, okay? This is between us. If striving for satisfaction in pleasure or satisfaction in riches is an unwise way to live, it doesn't help you and it makes no impact on the world. In fact, we're going to see today, if anything, it makes a bad impact on the world. I wonder why we're constantly told to tell those things to our children. 
Now, so far, Ecclesiastes has hinted at what is significant. Relationships with other people, a genuine respect for God lived out in life. He doesn't say, if you do those things, you'll make a really great mark on the world. He just says, God says those are things that matter. So you should do them. And we're going to find uh, this genre, this type of writing in the Bible, it's called wisdom literature. It's supposed to unsettle us and make us ask questions, and it doesn't give us loads of answers. And that's what we've been finding as we go through. So today, that will probably be how you feel at the end. Just warning there. And the writer is going to particularly today be having a go at my second algebra motivation, you know, saying this could be a path to being materially successful. And the writer today is going to say, structuring your life around wanting that is a very unwise way to live. He's going to say wisdom, which is adjusting to the way that the world really is, wisdom would be to enjoy what is in front of you rather than let your appetites rove. That's the verse we read. It's better to learn, if you think this is possible, to enjoy doing algebra as a gift from God than it is to think of it as a path to fill your appetite for pleasure or your appetite for success. That might sound like a big ask if you hit maths, so let's see if he can convince us. Here's the first thing that he says in the first few verses. Problem. Wealth tends to create oppression. Now remember, what he's trying to do is convince us not to spend our lives seeking wealth. Last week, we were all at the house of God together, learning to say only words to God that are true and respect that he is God, that he's, he's one in charge and he's made us human. And the call was to integrity, to reality, to respect and awe from God. This is now when you step outside the house of God. And he says, when you step outside from relating to God genuinely and well, you will be struck when you step outside that the world is utterly broken, particularly in its treatment of the poor. Why is that? Well, we see it. This is back in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Why is it that the poor are oppressed? He says, because people set up systems that pursue wealth, then it becomes very hard for anyone in the system to pursue justice. I'm sure you've had that experience. So, I don't know. Here's a good example. You, um, this is one that's pertinent to us. You get to somewhere for your flight and your luggage is the wrong size. That's something airlines are doing at the moment. And they say, so your bag's too big, you're going to need to pay more. And you're like, yes, but it's actually just about the right size. If I squeeze it in, it could be okay. What does the person say? They say, well, I would love to help you, but the system means I can't. Why can't the system just help you? It's four people, the plane, because someone's making money out of the system. Well, that's what he says. People set up systems that make it very hard for anybody in the system to pursue justice. Don't be surprised, he says, when you see that. What people do is create systems where each official has a higher official above them and the motivation is the pursuit of wealth, not the pursuit of justice. 
Lots of us, I think, work in systems like that, as you talk to me. Systems that are supposed to be about helping people, but in fact, the bottom line is the budget. Systems where profit is the agreed aim make it very hard to speak out for justice. I've been reflecting this week on a Christian organisation I'm connected to, where even in Christian organisations, the desire to do a good thing led to bad practices, and each layer of person in the organisation didn't feel free to speak out. Now, verse 9 suggests that if the person at the top were committed to everyone being looked after, the system would work better for them and actually for him. And it's interesting because I would expect the writer to then issue a great call, fight injustice. But all he's saying is, don't be surprised if you observe that system at work. I feel a bit uncomfortable about that. I prefer other bits of the Bible, like the prophets or the book of Revelation, that say, come on, live in a different way to fight injustice. But his point is this. Listen, you are used to being encouraged to run your life based on your appetites. No, not very long ago, I was talking to someone about what they should do with their life. Career choice. And their real reflection on that was, well, I just can't work out what it is I really want to do. See what's going on there. Just being encouraged to center their own desires in every decision. And he's saying, you need to realize, just reflect on the world. What that does is create systems where the poor are oppressed. Now, he doesn't get into politics. He doesn't say the government could solve that or business people could solve that. You different political sides can fight that out. He just says wisdom says one of the reasons living for your appetites is such a sort of vaporous, pointless thing to do is because it creates systems that crush the poor and they're very hard for anyone to break out of. Look, he says in the next few verses, one of, anyone, whoever loves money, never has enough. We are used to stories of miserable millionaires. But he's not just talking about millionaires, he's talking about anybody who loves money. And they never have enough. Easy for me to get on my high horse about this because pastors are not known for their wealth, at least in this country. But if you, even if you don't have much, if you're always thinking, if only I had a little bit more, I'd be better off, you'll never have enough. It's the way we're wired. We all think, if I just had that little bit more, I'd be happy. Everyone thinks that. Have you ever listened to uh, football transfer news on the radio? So-and-so is moving from Man City to Barcelona because they're not getting paid enough. Really? 100 grand a week is not enough? But it's how it works. If you love money, you never feel like you had enough. It's a vapor. There's nowhere solid to sit there. And look, he says, as people get more, what good does it do them except that they can buy stuff to look at in verse 11? There's nothing wrong with beauty. 
There's nothing wrong with that. But the problem of being in this cycle to get more, to get more stuff to feast your eyes on, is actually that it's bad for you. It's a very, very stressful way to live. He says at the end, there are people who sleep well. There are people in the world who think I've done my work now and I can sleep well at night. But those people exist. They're rarely wealthy people. Wealthy people find all the stuff they've accrued is very hard to manage. Stops them sleeping. I remember when I got my first paycheck. I was like, wow, all my troubles are over. I've been skimping for a while, but now I just have a bit more than I had before, so I think I'm going to be fine now. And immediately people around me started saying, so are you going to save up to buy a house? Are you going to invest in a better car? I was like, oh, I don't know. And that became quite stressful. Like, should I save up to buy a house? I don't know. Is that the right thing to do? Gosh, it was easier to sleep when I didn't have any money. <laughs> now, in world terms, nearly everybody is wealthy in our church. Nearly everybody. Maybe not compared to the people who are around you day to day, I don't think there's anyone in our church who's sort of fabulously, famously wealthy. If, the, if there is, you've kept it quiet. Well done. <laughs> um, he's not saying here it's bad to be rich. He's saying whether you're rich or poor, loving money ruins you and ruins other people. And he's just saying it's a wisdom. It's an observation. Having a lot and structuring your life around getting a lot tends to create injustice for others. It tends to make life more stressful for you. And he's not condemning anyone. He's just saying, that's why it's not wise to run your life around the endless pursuit of what you want. It's better what the eye can see, what you've got, than the roving of the appetite. Here's the second problem. The loss of wealth creates pointless pain. It's the next thing he says, um, verse 13 onwards. He says, something evil is at work in the world that means this. People think hoarded wealth will help them. More often than not, it doesn't. It harms them. People who hoard lots of money away are rarely nice people, is basically what he's saying there. And really, really rich people, particularly those who have ended up that way through wanting that their whole lives, are often ruined by it. That's what he's saying. You know, lottery winners nearly always get divorced afterwards. Wealthy bankers are often horrible to their children. That's the type of observation he's making. But also, people who love wealth do risky things to get more money, and they often lose it all. I have known at least one occasion where someone I knew was promised a lot of money when a relative died, and it turned out because of dishonest and dodgy things the relative had done in their life, there was nothing to hand on. If you love what money brings, you may not have it to pass on because you will have developed a character where you do stupid things to get more money. Of course, there are contraexamples. Maybe you've benefited from someone's very wise investment as an inheritance. Well done. Good. Great. Um, but he has seen generally that people who hoard wealth, it does bad things to them. They take stupid risks and lose it. And you cause yourself pointless ruin and stress 
because, as he says, you can't take it with you. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. I attended a funeral a few years ago now of a friend of mine who used to live in Liverpool who doesn't anymore, and his mum had died. She was just a normal North Liverpool lady. She never had much. She always lived in a council house. Um, she died with nothing. Church was absolutely packed. Um, I don't know if she knew the Lord or not. I don't know. But when her daughter was giving her eulogy to her, she said, uh, you know what my mum always said? And everybody in the church echoed back. There's no pockets in a shroud. There's no pockets in a shroud. It's just her saying. She spent her whole life saying, you can't take it with you. And she said, we'd come home all the time and find something we quite liked to be given away. That's how she worked. Um, it's evil at work when people follow their own desires their whole life. But when they do that, their life is full of darkness and frustration and anger. I spent one summer of my life working at a law firm with very, very wealth-driven people in the city of London. You know, proper work hard, play hard types. The atmosphere was not great. The way people spoke to each other, this constant thrum of tension and anger and frustration, always there. Now remember, he's not condemning anyone. He's not saying if you work in that environment, you should pack it in and become a pastor. He's saying things that we think are normal, working always to get a bit more, maybe for good reasons, to hand it to our kids. It's fundamentally insecure and it harms you. You don't become a wise person. Uh, I've been having chats with people about Ecclesiastes, and lots of them have said to me, this is really a book that seems to apply more as you get older. You know, it's in middle age and above you begin to realize you're not really probably going to leave a mark on the world. But those of you who are younger, you can take the warning now. Don't start down the road of always chasing more. It doesn't get you anywhere. Thirdly, problem three, you can be satisfied, but still not satisfied. And this is in verses seven to nine of chapter six. Here is an evil, he says, that weighs heavily in all of us. There are a small number of people in the world who do get everything they have dreamed of. And when they do, they do enjoy it. It's an evil at work when God grants them something that they've dreamed of, possessions, but doesn't grant them something else, the ability to enjoy them. And I think he calls that evil because that is evil, isn't it? You get one life. If you're going to use it to get things for yourself, at great cost to you and everyone else in the world, there's an evil at work if you can't even enjoy it. And yet, isn't it true? I don't want to be too political, but I think we've had a series of leaders in our country, definitely one at least, who have lied and hurt others because their heart's desire for their whole of their life was to be prime minister. And then when they got there, they didn't really seem very willing to actually do the job of prime minister. You know, just wanted to, I don't know, I don't know what he wanted to do. Anyway, let's not get into that. 
And you want to say to him, think of the mess you caused to get here. The least you could do is enjoy it. But it's a parable. It's a story. Even the people who really get what they set their hearts on, they don't enjoy it in the end. Um, So don't live your life in that way. He uses a very shocking image next in the passage. Verse 3 and 4. He says, someone like that, they would be better to be a stillborn child. Now I'm aware for some people here, that will seem like an incredibly insensitive image. A stillbirth is a horrendous thing to go through. And if you're living with that, that is a burden and a horrible thing to have to carry. I hope you'll find what he says here actually comforting, though. He says, even though that stillborn child never knew all the things about life we would have loved them to have known, they have rest with God. They're resting, safe with God. Unlike the person who gets life, gets to live a full life, but uses it to pursue wealth, they get none of that rest. They're never at rest. Even if they got two 1,000-year-long lives, the writer says, and they just have wealth but aren't able to enjoy it, he experiences none of the rest and safety and peace of that precious child that never opened his eyes. It's quite shocking, isn't it? I mean, you're giving a talk about money. It feels like almost in bad taste to start talking about that. But maybe that's the shock we need. We hear all this stuff about the vaporousness of life chasing our desires, and we think, I know some of us are thinking it now, yeah, that is true, isn't it, of those like super rich, miserable film stars? Or those hundred grand a week footballers who never seem to be satisfied? It's true of them. But the thing is, I'm listening to this, and the truth about me is, I do just need a little bit more to get a bigger house. You know, speak to the person behind me. I find myself thinking it. I know this is true about the vaporousness of chasing that, but I still find myself thinking, yeah, but I just just need a little bit more. The writer says it would be better to never experience life than to live it experiencing like that. He says, wake up. Someone who never lived and is at rest with God is better off than someone who lets love of money, desire for stuff, endless run for achievement to ruin their lives. Well, someone said to me a few weeks ago, I do like studying Ecclesiastes, but it is a bit depressing, isn't it? So far it has been, because it's unpicking things that we think are true, but I think there are some surprising solutions. Let's go back to algebra. So what we've learned is, it's not a means to get wealth later. It's not something you just do so you can have your heart's desire afterwards. Those would be chasing after the wind. That's a vapor. It is something you can find satisfaction in doing if you accept 
It is what God has given you to do at this moment. If you accept God is God over ruling, sheltering my life, and he happens to have given me this to do at the moment, I can find satisfaction, not to have my appetites ruin it. Remember, better is what the eyes can see than the roving of the appetites. It's part of life, like eating and drinking, which you can accept like thanksgiving. We can, he says, um, in the first part of chapter 6, say we can find satisfaction. And did you see, he says we can find that in our, what he calls, toilsome labor. So he's not saying, just to be clear, as we're often told, well, choose work that is fulfilling and exciting and helps you get what you want. No, he says work is always toilsome. You will always feel the effects of the fallen world through work, no matter what you choose. Algebra is toilsome labor. But there is a joy, a contentment to facing what you have to do every day because you're you. Not because it will make you rich. Not because it's what you most desire. But because a loving heavenly father is overseeing your life. And this is what he has for you to do today. I guess what Ecclesiastes has been saying all the way through is this. Listen, deciding what will happen in the future is above your pay grade. Nobody can control it. It's your job to live wisely and, this is what stops it being depressing, to live wisely and happily in the present because you trust God has you doing what he wants you to do. In the nicest possible way, he's saying, know your place. God can give the gift to people with wealth, he says, and that includes many of us, as I say in world terms, of enjoying those things and having peace in their work, even though it's toilsome. And did you see verse 3, it says, um, oh, it's not verse 3, um, verse 20, it says, those people seldom reflect on their days because God keeps them occupied with the gladness of heart. So those people don't spend ages worrying what am I achieving? What's the point of my life? Where am I really going? They seldom have those thoughts. Their thoughts are occupied with enjoying the thing that God's given them to do right at this moment. I don't know whether you've met the person. If you haven't, can you imagine them? I've met a few, tend to be older saints like this. Now, whether they have a lot or a little... They simply face each day in communion with God, sure that what they're doing is what he has given them, and that's what they need to do. And they're free from worries about their bank balance or what impact they're making on the world. They're just too busy enjoying the gifts God has given them in this moment. Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetites. Well, as the meerkats would say, simples. Just enjoy what you've got to do now. Except it's not simple, is it? There's no advice here on how to get that life 
just as there's no condemnation of the sad life, it's just wise observation. What he says is, you know, if you get the gift of being able to enjoy your work and possessions, it's good if that happens. It's like, great. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> it's good if I could achieve that thing I don't think I can ever achieve. Well, glad I tuned into church today. But he is a wisdom writer. He deliberately writes to say, yeah, you need to go and think about that. Take it with you. Some of you are discussing Ecclesiastes in your connect groups. You can talk about all of that. With your permission, I want to say a little bit more because I think Christians can say more. Not just we have observed that this is good, but that it is possible to have a life formed towards living this way. Now, here's the first thing. It's actually in this passage. He says you can enjoy if you accept what you're given as a gift. Think of what it's like to accept something as a gift. We recently, and this is why I'm definitely not preaching against inheritance, we recently had a fairly distant relative from our family leave us a gift. It's very generous of them. Think about what it is to receive that as a gift. Every time we think about what to do with that gift, we are thankful to them. And it does limit what we do. Not so much in that we'd buy what we bought, what she would have bought. She would have bought like three chintz sofas or something. You know, not controlled in that way, but really matters to us to use that in a way that somehow reflects her generosity to us. You know, we're not going to spaff it on cocaine or whatever. <laughs> this is a gift from someone who matters to us. Now, Ecclesiastes is saying, use your whole life that way towards God. Think about it all as a gift from God. That will begin to form what you do. I get it's not specific advice. You've got to work that out. But I think it helps. Here's the second thing, I think. Here, a Christian called Jeremiah Burroughs, he said this. The art of contentment for a Christian is not to seek to add to our circumstances, but subtract from our desires. For a Christian, the art of contentment is not to seek to add to our circumstances, but subtract from our desires. You see, here's what we're being told in Ecclesiastes. Our constant desires lead to an unjust world, and it ruins life for us. It's better, he's observed, to be able to accept your work each day as a significant gift from God and enjoy your wealth and basically be contented. And then here's what Jesus adds. He says, there is a secret of true contentment. There is freedom from endless grasping. If you can know, you are really safe and loved by God. More than that, each step, each day, he loves you, he cares for you, he accompanies and guides your steps. So it's not just your lot in life, as in, well, God's given you this work to do, so get on with it. God is planning and guiding your life, if you know him, to do things that you may never see the impact of, but that really matter to him. The Bible describes Christians as overflowing 
with spiritual riches. Now, some of you, your cynical hat is going on already. Okay, spiritual riches. Tell you what, we'll go out afterwards, shall we, and drive my spiritual Ferrari. (laughs) But as I go on in life, I discover that everyone's heart actually is longing for spiritual riches. The, The fight to get physical riches is actually a spiritual need for acceptance and love. We're longing to be drawn into the glory and depth of God's own person, to know safe community, to do something that matters. And the Bible says to Christians, you have every spiritual blessing. Already you have that. We want to be careful here. Christians still live under the sun. We can still invest in and do things that seem right but don't go right. You know, you can give money to a Christian charity and discover that they wasted it or whatever. Under the sun, we will still have that fallen experience in the world. We still find it all a bit vaporous. But Christians can care less about that. Because our heart, our spirit, our soul is deeply and truly and spiritually satisfied. We're not adding to our circumstances. Ecclesiastes says that's mostly beyond your control. But we're subtracting from our desires. One last thing. Jesus, who was the greatest wisdom teacher of all, the one who really understood us better than anyone else, he says, once your life is filled with the true wealth of knowing God, you can actually train your heart to desire what matters. He said these words, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Now, If I was Jesus, and you should all be very glad that I'm not. (laughs) If I was Jesus, I'd have written that the other way around. I'd have said, where your heart is, your treasure will be. Jesus knows us better than that. He says, no, 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 no. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. You have agency to change what you desire by investing in what God says matters. Your heart will follow your treasure. Listen, better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. It sounds like we're being told off for wanting wealth too much. But the word better there is actually saying it's better for you. It's better for you to be able to enjoy where you are now than to let your appetites rove for things that you may never get and if you do are easily lost. And Jesus says, if you know you have every spiritual blessing in him, you can live that way. Let's pray. Just take a few moments of quiet to reflect on what we've heard.
Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. Lord, we want to believe and then live out that what you have for us to do each day can be in, received as a gift and enjoyed without our messed up and twisted desires ruining it. And how we need you by your spirit to come and dwell in our lives to change us, to give us that joy. And we pray you would help us do what we can do with our treasure so it changes our heart. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.